So like I said, we are in the fourth Sunday of a season in the life of the church called Advent, where we take time to look back at the incarnation of Jesus and all that that means. And we're going to celebrate his birthday here this week, and we look forward to his return. This historically in the life of the church has been a time of both looking back and looking forward. And as I've shared with you, this season is the start of the church uh, annual calendar. We start our new year here looking toward the Lord and remembering him. And that's how we posture our hearts as we go into 2020. And I hope you have a great week. I imagine some of you, most of you probably have time off this week. Most of you are going to eat some good food. Hopefully we're going to celebrate the Cowboys going to the playoffs. We're hopeful. Hope against hope. We continue like Abraham just to believe. And I want to remind you that on Christmas Eve, which is in a couple days, we'll be gathering for our Christmas Eve service at 5 p.m. I want to invite you to that. It's a family service. We'll have everybody in here. Uh, we'll worship. Uh, we'll remember Jesus, and we'll celebrate Christmas together. That's Christmas Eve, 5 p.m., and then the following Sunday. So that's this coming Sunday, December the 29th. This is really important. We have our Selah Sunday. We do this every year on the last Sunday of the year. We don't hold a formal uh, worship gathering like we have this morning. We take a break. We remember all that God's done. It's a way for us to give our volunteers, the many people who serve in and around our church, a, week, uh, a weekend of rest. And then we'll be back together January the 5th, the first Sunday in January, like normal. As we head into January, I share with you about this. Uh, last week, we're going to join in in a time together as a church of prayer and fasting toward the latter half of January into the beginning of February. I want to share that with you now. We'll be talking about that more, but I'm excited and expectant for what the Lord is going to do in our midst during that time. All right, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 21 today, and we uh, are looking at the different things that, that heaven brings. Because we've been wondering, like, why do Christians look forward to and long for the return of Christ? And we've seen that we look forward to and long for the return of Christ because his return brings the hope of heaven. His return brings the peace of heaven. His return brings the joy of heaven. And today we're going to see that his return brings the love of heaven. His return brings the love of heaven. And uh, as I was preparing for this message, I started thinking about, I guess, the opposite of love, which might be defined as fear. And I was looking at this uh, Bible study website, kind of like Bible Gateway, where you go on and you look up all these verses. And they, they had a list of their most popular, most often referenced, most often looked at scriptures. And in their top 10, 40%. That's four out of 10, 40% of the top 10 had to do with fear or overcoming fear or defeating fear or what do you do with fear in your life. It's clear and evident that many people are going to the scriptures, looking to God's word for help dealing with the issue of fear in our lives. Some researchers at Chapman University recently surveyed people about the kinds of things that they're afraid of. I'm going to share the answers with you, and I want you to see if any of these connect with you. Top five list, number one was government corruption. 
People are afraid of government corruption. Uh, you don't have to say amen to that, but I know uh, some of us, we're afraid of that. Cyber terrorism. Oh, this is a good one. Tracking of personal information by government and corporations. Yes, afraid of that. Uh, terrorist attacks and bio-warfare were the top five kind of most common fears. Jurassic Park, there you go, that must have been number six, didn't quite make the top five, but obviously dinosaurs coming back, number six for sure. And I was thinking about my own life, and I remembered back to this time when Christine and I, we were newly married, and we had this vision, this idea of living in community and doing discipleship and evangelism in a particularly uh, uh, poor and crime-ridden neighborhood in our city. And so we decided to move into this neighborhood. And, and when I say this was a challenging neighborhood, let me just describe. You have the housing projects right here. That was our neighbor's. We had the alternative school for kids that got kicked out of public school. This is where they went. That was right there. Um, behind us, we had a, a group of panhandlers uh, that kind of Roam the streets in that part of town that they would pass through often. Our neighbors on the left side uh, that we shared a yard with, they had two dogs named Mary and Jane. Mary and Jane, so you can guess kind of their hobbies and activities. Um, and then on the other side of us, we had a frat house that put plastic bags, trash bags up over the windows. And they had located in that neighborhood because the police didn't often come over there so they could have their parties like they wanted to. And we thought, man, this would be a great place for us to move in. Yes, idealism, I love it. Uh, I do believe it was a step of faith. But while we're living there, we've got some friends on the street. We're trying to love Jesus. We're trying to reach out to our neighbors. And we got to know some of the different people in the neighborhood, including some of the panhandlers that we got to kind of befriend a bit. And one night, though, when we were walking home, uh, I had been at a friend's house with my wife. It's a night like tonight where the days are short. So it's probably like 6 o'clock, but it feels like it's midnight outside. So dark. We're walking home. It's like three doors. We're going down. And as I'm walking back, I see these two uh, guys that I knew. One of them that I knew, they were panhandlers. We'd gotten to know. One of them's name was Calvin. Uh, Calvin, in addition to being a panhandler, also had a crack problem. Uh, and, and so we see him walking up toward us. And when I see him walking up toward us, I realize, like, uh, this is, there's something going on here. Like, there's a different look on the face. There's a different look on the eyes. I have my wife with me. It's dark. We're in the middle of the hood. I'm like, man, I don't know what is about to happen here. And they come up to us, and they're standing there, and they're talking to us. But you can tell that they've got something going between them and they're looking at us not like as hey these are neighbors that we know but they're looking at us as like these are going to be objects of something we're about to pull off so I like you my heart rate is elevated my blood pressure is high I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do when one of them tries to accost me or my wife and and just have all the scenarios going in my mind some of you know what I'm talking about when you have those scenarios and you're just trying to play them out. What is going to go on? I'm sweating profusely at this point. And then out of nowhere, another panhandler we knew named Pops walks up and he steps in between us. And he came up out of this dark alley, walks right in between us and tells Calvin and his buddy, hey, these are my friends. You know, let's leave them alone. 
So Calvin and his buddy walk off, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, <laughs> Pops. I didn't know what was going to happen. And he was like, sure, yeah, no, no problem, no problem. Hey, by the way, uh, could you loan me some money for something I have going on? And I was so thankful at that point. He could have asked me for a million dollars. I didn't have a million dollars, but I probably would have written the check for that at that moment. I just gave him whatever I had, walked on home. I was like so thankful that we didn't have this massive altercation in the street. When I get to my house, I turn around, and I see Pops now standing with Calvin and the other guy walking down toward the restaurants that were behind us, and I realized they were all playing me. It was all a setup. And I share that with you, you know, whatever, it's $20. But, but what stuck with me was this irrational fear when I would be in various places that felt dark and felt like there were various people passing through. I just have all these thoughts go through my mind that stuck with me for years, right? I imagine you've got some fears that you're dealing with you know, that have stuck with you, things that you've been through, or fears like we listed, the top five fears. You're worried about Facebook taking your data and doing something with it. We've got these fears that we're dealing with. I don't think I have to convince us that we probably all have a struggle with fear in our lives and unhealthy fears that just control us and rob us of our joy and our life and our peace. And so there's one particular verse in the Bible that speaks about fear and connects it with love. And I'd never thought about this before until I read this in God's Word, and I want to show it to you. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. Because I personally have had so many fears, I've really clung to this verse. It's been really meaningful to me. And it says this, There is no fear... In love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So, what it's saying is when we encounter perfect love, it has power, authority, strength to drive fear out of our lives. And when you think about that, it makes sense, right? If I knew that Facebook loved me completely, and perfectly, I wouldn't be worried about what are they doing with my information. If I knew that Calvin and Pops loved me perfectly, I wouldn't be worried about them trying to scam me. I wouldn't. Perfect love drives out fear. And what I want to show you today as we look toward heaven is that heaven is the place of perfect love. This is the place where perfect love dwells there. And because perfect love is there, all fear that torments so many of us is driven out. Heaven is a place of perfect love. Revelation 21, verse 2. We're going to continue, and I encourage you to take out your Bibles. That's going to be our main text for today as we're looking at this vision that the Apostle John had describing heaven. And as we've been studying it, we've seen that it's a new heaven and a new earth. There's all these things that are there marked by hope and joy and peace. And today we're going to see that heaven is marked by this type of perfect love that drives out fear. 
And the way that John describes this, the way that he articulates the love that is in heaven is through a certain image that we'll read about. It's a picture meant to communicate the love that God has for his people. Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now catch this. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So he's having this vision of heaven and he's seeing it come together and he's seeing that this this city is now adorned like a bride for her husband. Right? This image of a husband and a wife, the love that a husband has for a bride, he's referencing. And this is one of many images or ways that scripture communicates about the love that God has for people. We see scripture talk about God loves people like a father loves children or like a mother loves her children or like a friend loves a friend or like a shepherd loves sheep or like a vine dresser loves a vineyard or like a physician loves his patients. Or here we see that one of the ways of describing and communicating the love that God has for his people is like that of a husband with a bride. And here when he's talking about the holy city, he's talking about the people of God. That as we see heaven, one of the things that we are going to see and be overwhelmed with and why we look for and long for Christ's return is because of the love that God has for his people that is experienced in its fullness there. And that we can taste foretaste of it now in this life. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul takes this image, takes this picture of Christ's love for his people being like a husband for a bride. And he begins to expound and articulate and unpack the dimensions of this love. We're going to look at Ephesians 5. So hold your place in Revelation 21 and turn to Ephesians 5. Verse 25. And here Paul is giving instructions to marriages. He's giving instructions to husbands and wives. If you're married in this place, these are great passages of Scripture to learn how to have a godly marriage from. And note that as he does, he speaks about this image of God's love for his people. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So it begins to describe the way that husbands are to love their wives is similar to the way that Christ loves the church. And then he goes in to expound on that. How did, he, how did Christ love the church? He loved her by giving himself up for her. So we see first this type of love that God has for his people is a sacrificial love. It is a love that gives itself up. We see that demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. When he gave himself up for his people, he gave himself up for his bride. That he might sanctify her. It's a cleansing love. It's a washing love. It's a love that cleanses and purifies and heals and makes new. And he cleanses her by washing with the water of his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot 
or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So it's the type of love that brings out the best in someone. It's the type of love that brings out the beauty in someone. It's a type of love that brings out the, the health in someone, the perfection in someone, the gold in someone. It's that type of love that transforms people into the best version of themselves. And you might be here and you might be like, well, Zach, I, I, I'm kind of a, uh, I'm a, I'm a manly man. I like Rocky Balboa. I like steaks. I don't really know that I need to connect with the love of God. And what I want to make sure, I want to speak to you for a moment. Because as a human, regardless of your makeup and your preferences, you are made and designed for love. It is what God has created you for. You are fueled. The best version of you comes out in environments where you know that you are loved and where you give yourself to loving others. The best version of you is found there. A number of years ago uh, in Romania, they had an incredible orphan problem. And they had so many orphans that the orphanages were filled and they would put babies into these orphanages and they would just lie in their cribs all day long with no human interaction. And in this crisis, people began to, researchers began to study the impact of lack of love, the impact of lack of physical affection, the impact of, of the lack of verbal affection, of care that it has on people. And what they found was that, were that babies who were cared for and grew up in an environment of love had significantly different brain chemistry their brains were significantly different than those babies that grew up in these loveless environments. From a hardwiring of the brain, they were different. Sometimes with lifelong side effects or ramifications for the kids that did not receive that love. Why do I share that story with you? Because regardless of who you are, you need to know that you are loved by God. And you need to know that the more that you connect with that, the more that you feed on that, the better version of you that it brings out. It makes you become the best person that God designed you to be when we connect with the love that God has for his people. And he goes on to say in verse 28, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. So he's saying that the love that Christ has for his people is the same manner in which he loves himself. Think about that for a moment. Let that sink in for a moment. Sometimes when I talk with people, they have a hard time connecting with the love of God. And one of the things that they tell me is that I don't, I don't feel loved. I don't, I don't feel God's love. I'm not one of those people that just kind of, we put on a song and it's like, oh man, I'm there. I'm not that person, right? And I hear you and I want to encourage you. I believe actually the Lord has given me a spiritual gift to help people connect with God's love for them. And what I want to share with you is that as you're getting started in this, you're not looking primarily to discern God's love by what you feel. Our feelings are important, but they're not the primary arena where we discern and decide if God loves us. 
You need to go more deeply than that. The place where we start out is the place not of feeling, because our feelings come and feelings go, but it's the place of truth. It's the place of God's word. And as we begin to meditate and marinate on the love that God has for his people with our minds, it begins to renew our minds. It begins to transform our minds. It puts a new spirit in our minds. And all of a sudden, we begin to realize the ways in which God has loved us. It is not that you are not loved by God. God loves you deeply, and sometimes we live incredibly unaware of the ways in which he is actively and proactively loving us. And as you begin to meditate on God's word, as you let the truth speak into who you are, all of a sudden you begin to see, wow, Lord, you have loved me like this and loved me like this and loved me like this and loved me like this. And it will impact your emotional chemistry. But we don't start with how you feel today. We start with God's word because his love is true. The second thing that I hear people say that I have a hard time connecting with the love of God is, well, isn't he kind of like a generous benefactor to the whole world? Kind of like a rich guy who gives money to my school that I guess he likes my school, but he doesn't know me. I'm just kind of part of the group, right? And so sometimes we can say that or think that, and it keeps us from realizing the intentionality with which God loves us. And I want to point you again that here it's saying that Christ loves his people like he loves his own body. In John 15, 9, it expounds on this. And this is a verse to go back to over and over and over again. If you want to get something tattooed on yourself, get this tattooed on yourself. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Sit with that for a moment. How much does God the Father love Jesus? We'd all say a lot, right? And Jesus is saying, as much as the Father has loved me, that's the love with which I love you? Wow. Like, just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus loves you in the same manner and measure and particularity that the Father loves him. How many of you know that the Father's love for Jesus is a personalized love? It's not a generalized thing. It's not just a a warm feeling. No, this is intentional and personal. And Jesus is saying, I love you in the same way. I love you like I love my own Body. Ephesians 5 goes on to describe it even more. And it says this, that he said that, that the way that Christ loves his body is he nourishes his body. He feeds his body. He cares for his body. And he cherishes his body. That Christ cherishes the church. Remember one time working with a guy who just, he, trying to do the best that he could, but man, he had a lot of criticisms against the church, all kinds. It's like every day I would talk when there was something new that the church, either our church or the church at general, didn't have right and needed to get together. And I listened to him for a long time and tried to be compassionate, tried to be understanding, because I know there's a lot of legitimate things that he said, but it was just so much. After a while, I said, hey, man, let me just be honest with you. Uh, if someone talked about my wife the way that you were talking about the church, 
I would get very upset. You do realize the church, for all her imperfections, is the bride of Christ. So as we articulate frustrations or things that we think might need to be different, we need to realize that we're speaking about someone's bride. And watch the way and the spirit in which we communicate. Christ loves you. He loves his people. That should be an amen from every one of us. I'm going to say it again. Christ loves you. He loves his people. He cherishes you. He cherishes his church. It's amazing. And in verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Unbelievable. So when we see a human marriage, human marriages are meant to be based on the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And we see that love in full-scale glory in heaven demonstrated as the bride is going forth toward the husband. Now let's dive in. When we're talking about love, let's lean a little deeper because there's so many different definitions of love. So many different concepts of, well, what is love? And what do we mean when we say love? So C.S. Lewis, uh, the genius, did a classic study of the ways that love has been articulated. And he boiled them down to four particular words in the Greek language, the first one being eros. This is a passionate love that's based on body chemistry. Think of the Cupid. Cupid is connected to Eros, right? This is where we get the word erotic from. That's the one definition of love that people reference when we're talking about love. What's interesting is though this was common in the ancient world, this, this usage of love, it's nowhere to be found in the New Testament. It's not in the New Testament at all. When we're talking about the love that God has for his people, we're not talking about Eros. Second type of love is phileo. This is a reciprocal friend love. Think of Philadelphia. It's why it's the city of brotherly love. And what this means is, hey, we like the same things, or I like how you make me feel, or we have the same interests, or kind of I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's a reciprocal type of love. It's what most friendships are based on, and for good reason, right? It keeps us, when we love this way, it keeps us from getting into really toxic relationships. That's important. But at the heart of it, right, this is a love that can break down when you stop meeting the needs that I think that I have. Or our relationship is not reciprocal. I met with a, a marriage counselor who came in and spoke at the church a while back. And he told me, he said, hey, most marriages are built on eros and phileo. Most of them are built on some kind of body chemistry passion, particularly in the beginning. And then phileo which is reciprocity. He said this really makes it hard for a marriage to be healthy because when everything is based on reciprocity, both partners are trying to measure out equal amounts and not get caught putting in more than they get back. So they're constantly evaluating each other, measuring each other, saying, am I putting in too much? Or are they putting in more than I'm putting in? Or I don't want to get overextended. I don't want to be played the fool. I don't want to go in and then be taken advantage of. And so he said marriages will just spend so much time in this phileo love that doesn't allow them to go deep and taste the goodness of what's available to them. So third type of love is storge. 
This is a love based on character. When we say a person is loving or a person is kind, this is like just, man, they're just a nice person. They're just a loving person, right? And God is loving in his character. And Jesus does use the, the, the idea of friendship to communicate his love, but none of these are the primary way that the scripture speaks of the love of God. Number four is agape. This is how the Bible describes God's love for his people, that it's unconditional love. God loves his people. He loves humanity unconditionally. God's love is unconditional. It's not based on what you do. And it's a type of love that desires the highest good for the one who is loved. So God's love for you means that he is committed to your highest good. That's what's on his mind. That's what's in his heart. That's his intention towards you. That's the kind of love that God has for his people. That's amazing. So good. This is how God loves us. Interesting fact, there are only a few known occurrences of the word love outside of the of this word love agape outside of the Bible. In other words, this word was not used very often in extra biblical writings, but it's used in the New Testament. It's used approximately 320 times. In the short chapters of the New Testament, 320 times the rest of humanity used very often because this is the kind of love that can only be found in God. And this is the type of love that you and I most need. This is the type of love that connects with us the deepest place of who we are. And it's what God has designed you for, to be loved in this way. This is his intention towards you. And we see the full-scale depth of that in heaven. But we can experience the foretaste of it now in this life. So back to my original topic to you related to fear. And what I want you to see is that when people like you and me get in touch with the love that God has for us, it drives out fear. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 articulated it like this. He was a person who radically encountered the love that Christ had for him. And it drove out and overcame fear. And this is what he said, Romans 8.35. He said, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I think those are all things that I would be concerned about in my life. You know, I just am like, man, yeah, I could connect with all those. Um, except maybe sword. I don't know if that's going to happen here in Dallas, but maybe. Um, but Paul's saying, is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes in, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. You know, those things to come, that's where I really get nervous. And Paul is saying, neither things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nor anything else in all creation, no medical report will be able to separate you from the love that Christ has for you. No job change will be able to separate you from the love that Christ has for you. No stock market change, no presidential change, no governmental change, no, no relational change will be able to separate you from the love that Christ has for you. 
And so what Paul said is, I have become convinced of this thing. And what it allowed him to do was to live fearless and to serve God and serve the purposes of God in his generation. I'm convinced that none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we go back to why are we longing for the return of Christ, it's because it brings the love of heaven. And that is the place that you and I will live for eternity if we know Jesus. And I want to invite you to stand now. We're going to take time to go to the Lord and let these words sink deep and let him work by the power of the Holy Spirit to communicate his love in greater and greater ways into our hearts. The way we're going to do that is we're going to take communion together. The officiants are going to come forward in a moment with the bread and the cup, and we'll take that as the worship team leads us. Um, as we prepare for that, though, I, I realize that not everyone here may say, well, I, I know Jesus. You may say, I, I don't know this love that you're talking about. You may say, I've never made a decision to put my trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to begin a relationship with him. And I want to give you an opportunity today to take that very important step. You see, when we uh, look at the world around us, it's very easy for us to see how broken the world is. We see the brokenness in our own lives, and we see the brokenness on the headlines every day. But Jesus teaches us this is not how it always was. That God created us, he created you, created me, he created us to have a relationship with him and to live in a place of peace and life and joy and hope and goodness. And mankind turned from God. We said, we don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to be our creator. We don't want to do life on your terms. We'll take it from here. And when we turn from God, when the Bible describes this story, that turning the Bible calls sin. And when we cut off that relationship with our creator, we cut off our access to the love that we're made for. And that led to the brokenness that we see in the world all around us. And people do all sorts of things to try and overcome that brokenness, to try and find that love. You try career. You try and find the popular group at school. You try and find things just to have fun. But none of those ever really make a difference. In the end, they all come up short. But God loved us so much, he didn't leave us in our brokenness. But he came in Jesus, God with skin on Jesus is God. And he came and he lived a perfect life and he was without sin. And he went to the cross and he died on the cross for your sin, your brokenness, your rebellion, and mine. And when he rose again, he released power for restoration, power for wholeness, power for a clean heart and a new start. Restoration back to God's perfect design. And the way we begin that process is by putting our trust in Jesus, by repenting of going our own way and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And as we do that, he leads us into God's perfect design for us and our lives. And eternity with him awaits. So if that's you, if you've never put your trust in Jesus in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to do that. If I get everyone to bow your heads for a moment close your eyes. If that's you, if you, if you want to follow Jesus and you never made that decision, but today's the day, I want to invite you to raise your hand. 
If you've been out of church a long time and you're trying to make your way back to God, I want you to know God's not waiting for you to get your act together. But he's running down the road looking for you and wanting to bring you home. When you raise your hand, I'm not going to call on you or bring you up to the front of the stage or anything like that. This is just an opportunity for you to respond in faith to the Lord. So that's you. If you'll go ahead and put your hand up. Praise God. And if you join with me in prayer, I'd encourage you, uh, all of us, to pray this prayer together. Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus, you are good. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving my sin. I choose today and every day forward to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, the officials will come forward and you can come and take communion when you're ready. If you'll take of the bread and the cup, return to your seat. As the worship team leads us, you can respond to the Lord.